sometimes the question that we ask is very simply, how do you do it? How do we do it? How do we go from day to day and week to week and month to month and year to year as followers of Jesus? How do people do that? Now, obviously people do or none of us would be here tonight. But how do you do it when it gets hard? And how do you do it when when life just doesn't go the way you'd hoped or the way you'd expected? And, you know, thinking back to what we talked about on Sunday, we're all going to strike camp. Right? We're all going to be out of here. These tents, these bodies will be torn down. But you look around, and in some cases, the tents get torn up more than in others. You know, maybe you're one of those saying, feeling a little shredded. This is why I think the Lord chose for Paul to be his instrument. You may recall when Ananias was sent to Paul to uh, help him to regain his sight, to pray for him to receive the Holy Spirit, to baptize him. Ananias recoiled a bit and said to the Lord, I really don't want to do that. And the Lord said, no, you need to go. I will show him how he must suffer for my namesake. And so Paul was called to bring the gospel, but he was also called to suffer like Christ. And suffer he did. And if anyone understood what it meant to have their tent torn down, it was the tent maker, Paul, whose life was a shambles after coming to Jesus. His was a daily tearing down. I mean, truly. So if you ever get discouraged or you ever think life is hard, spend five minutes with Paul. Look at what he faced, what he dealt with. The pressure that he was under and the pain that he endured. You remember this. We just read it last week and I believe again on Sunday. But 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 8. He says, afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not despairing or not totally perplexed. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. And yet for all of that, the striking down and the perplexity and the, and the tribulation that Paul went through, he just seemed to have an indomitable faith. You, know, you could not stop this guy. And so sometimes we, we look at people like Paul in the Scriptures and we say, well, that's them. You know, he was an apostle. You know, he was called by Jesus. He saw Jesus on the Damascus Road. Different scenario than my life. No, Paul was just like you. Just like me. But yes, he had an indomitable faith. And I look at Paul and there are days, good and bad, where I say, I want a faith like that. I want a faith of that caliber. I mean, I honestly, I would love to run the way Paul ran the race. So how did he do it? You know, it's, it's a faith that says, down in verse 6 of chapter 5, Therefore, being always of good courage... And knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from, from, from the Lord, for we walk by faith and not by sight. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. He says, therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to Him. So what was it that galvanized the faith of Paul? What gave him the ability to run this race and to run it the long haul from conversion to death? What helped him do it? Well, first of all, as we talked about on Sunday, 
We know where we're going to go. That alone has carried me through many days. Just knowing where I'm going, knowing where I'm going to end up, and anything between here and there, it's like, you know, because I know I'm going to be there. Because I know that Jesus is preparing for me right now. I can, I can get through this mess. And so that's a big one. Dead or alive, this tent is going to be transformed in the twinkling of an eye. Now that is encouraging. Amen. And that builds faith. What's interesting is Paul continues to write this letter of comfort to the people at Corinth. Is he now is going to share three more, and, and you might find others, but there are three real standout catalysts here. Motivators of ministry. Three things that he pulls out and he talks about and he mentions in this chapter and on into, we'll get about probably about halfway through chapter six tonight. Because the context is all there. And, and Paul lays out these things that get us through. These things that, that mobilize faith. That are incentivizing. That encourage us. And the first, again, after the fact that we know where we're going to go. The first one is a little surprising. Because it has to do with judgment. And I want you to think about this. Again, we're all going to strike camp. And when we do, whether by death or caught up right out of life, we will all be judged. Now someone might say, oh wait, Rick, you got that wrong. No, sinners will be judged. We were judged at the cross. I've heard you say that before. Our judgment's 2,000 years old, and Jesus took our judgment at the cross. I did say that, but understand there is yet a judgment for believers. As well as a judgment for unbelievers. Jesus put it this way, said this on Sunday, we'll quote it again, John 5.28. An hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth. Those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life. Those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. But understand, the word deeds is not there. So correctly spoken and correctly read what Jesus said, those who did the good to a resurrection of life. And those who did the evil to a resurrection of judgment. Let's be a little more specific. Those who did the good will be raised if you are in the grave, if the body is in the tomb, the the body will rise to a resurrection of life if prior to going into the grave you did the good. The word good there is agathos. And it's translated good. It's also simply translated useful. And what Jesus is driving at, and I understand this because it fits the context of all Scripture, what Jesus is saying is, those who make the good choice will be resurrected to life. And I did say this on Sunday, there's one good choice you can make. Choose Jesus. You choose Him as Lord and Savior. That is the good that you can do. All other good God gives you to do. He enables you to do. Me to do. Even the non-believer does good in this world because God is good. And so there is goodness thanks to the presence of God and the work of God and the creation of God. But the good that I choose is to choose Jesus. But there's also those who commit the evil. And the evil is not necessarily deeds. It is, again, a choice. The word evil here, I kind of like this word in the Greek, it's phaulos. And it's utterly foul. Those who do the foulos, but listen, like agathos means good and useful, foulos literally means worthless. Those who made the worthless choice. 
will be raised up for a judgment. The worthless choice will be judged at the great throne of God. And you can read about that. Revelation 20 verses 11 through 15 describes what so many, what I as a child grew up fearing, judgment day. The long line to find out if you're in or if you're out. It's completely flawed theology, but the great throne judgment is judgment day, but it is only a judgment of those who didn't believe, of those who made the worthless choice. What is the worthless choice? To choose now as opposed to then. To choose me instead of him. To choose sin rather than seek forgiveness. The worthless choice. However, even those who are raptured, those who are resurrected, will also be judged. And that's the judgment that that Paul begins to talk about at the Bema seat. Verse 10. For we must all appear, and he is talking to believers when he says this, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Seat, the judgment seat, the bema. And that is the Greek word that's used right there. We must all appear before the bema of Christ. And the bema, literally it means step. And that phrase bema in the Greek was because it was a raised platform with steps leading up to it. So they called it the step or the the platform, the dais we might say. We talked about this dais that still remains in ancient Corinth today. Several of you saw this dais on our last tour to Israel in Greece. And we looked at this and talked about it. And, and the judge would sit upon that dais, upon that bema, and make judgments. It was a, an austere place. It was a place that was used for judgment to be passed down. It was imposing. I mean, some 30 to 40 feet long. Another 10 to 12 feet high. So when you were standing before the judge, you were looking up and he was looking down. And that was the bema, is the bema. And we must all appear before the bema of Christ. But this place of judgment wasn't just judgment for deeds done wrong. It was also a place of rewards. It was the type of place that we we see in the the Olympics today. You know, you see where the the bronze and the silver and the gold are are handed out and they put them on these raised platforms. That's a a holdover from the Olympic Games in Greece. Or in Corinth, the Isthmian Games. Right, the Isthmian Games, they, they had, which were almost as big every other year as the Olympic Games. And so the winners would come before the Bema, and they would receive their wreaths, their rewards, their awards for, for their running or for their athletic event or, or whatever the reward was for. And they were recompensed, and note that, Paul says that, we must all appear before the Bema of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body. Recompensed is komizo in the Greek, and it's literally compensated. This is not a place where salvation is decided. That's already happened. That did happen in a judgment 2,000 years ago for followers of Jesus. Salvation is dealt with. This is compensation. Compensation for deeds done in the body. Now, if that's strange theology to you, it was for me until I studied Corinthians several years back. Until I started really thinking through this issue of of judgment, and, and if we're to appear before the judgment seat of Christ, what is that about? If it's not judgment for salvation, if I know I'm already saved, what is this judgment about compensation? I love what the writer says in Hebrews 6, verse 10, God is not unjust 
so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. God won't forget a single thing you do. In service to him, I, I forget them all the time. In fact, I'm five minutes away and they're forgotten. You know, things I've done, things I've been involved in. Uh, and someone came up to me on Sunday and said, Hey, Rick, I've got a picture of you baptizing us in a pool at someone's house. And I, for the life of me, could not remember. I'm like, really? Are you sure it was me? Yeah, well, you're in the picture. You have more hair. I'm like, well, thanks for that. I, I couldn't remember. And I don't. And so many of, what, of the things that you actually do in the name of Jesus... And they could be little things. Remember Jesus said, I tell you the truth, anyone who gives this child a cup of cold water in my name is worthy of reward. So, anything that has been done in the name of Jesus, God remembers. He keeps track of. And so at the Bema of Christ, you're going to stand before this, I'm going to stand before this judgment seat, and we are going to be compensated for all the good that we have done in the name of Jesus. And the bad. Note that. So that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Ugh. Well, that kind of takes all the fun out of it right there. Can I just sidestep the Bema seat? Because I have a feeling my rewards are not going to be as plenteous as my punishments, as my, my penalties. How, how does that work? This is the aspect that's funny. I've talked about the Bema Seat many times. Taught on it, looked at it, considered it. But always in terms of reward. And just noting that he says whether good or bad kind of tripped me up. Because I have never talked about the bad that comes out of the Bema Seat. I don't think specifically, at least I haven't thought about it. But the Bema Seat is reward and it's penalty. Reward and penalty. What does that look like? I want you to turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Hopefully this is fresh on your minds, having just gone through 1 Corinthians recently. But 1 Corinthians chapter 3 parallels exactly what Paul is saying in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 10. Referring to the Bema Seat. Talking about this, this issue of both rewards and penalty. Because both are going to take place right then and there at the judgment seat of Jesus. Follow along, verse 11, Paul says, No man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Amen. Love that verse. Right on, verse 12. Now, if any man builds on the foundation, so we're talking about building in Christ. We're talking about Christians doing Christian things, Christ-like things. If anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident for the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. Now, that ain't purgatory. And I don't believe there's a big furnace to the side of the Bema seat and you're going to walk up, hand your stuff to Jesus and He's just going to toss it in there and see what comes out the other side. There is a picture being drawn here and understanding that Paul is trying to get across to the people at Corinth. Each man's work, verse 13, will be evident for the day will show it because it's to be revealed with fire and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. Verse 14, if any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. And there's your compensation. There's the recompense. The things that I do now, 
that are of eternal value. You might compare to gold or silver or precious stones, things that can go into the fire and come out the other side. Those things I will be compensated for, rewarded for. But the wood and the hay and the straw of my life, guess what it's going to do? Burn up. It's not going to last. It will not remain. This church building is wood, hay, and straw. It's beautiful. Took a lot of effort. A lot of rolling up of sleeves. A lot of faithfulness. A lot of giving. A lot of trust on your part to the Lord. But the building itself is going to burn up. This is not an eternal structure. Even the stones in the baptistry. Gone, man. But the people who got saved because of your faithfulness, that's gold. Those are precious stones. That will last. But note this, verse 15, if any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. There's the penalty. He will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. Again, we are saved here in the purifying work of the blood of Christ. But this, this Bema Seat picture, this fiery picture, is a metaphor of worldly worth and value. All those things that we think are so important, that burn up, that we will realize in that moment before Jesus at the Bema Seat, what a waste it was. All that effort, all that stress, all that frustration that I poured into those things, gone, worthless, of no redeeming value whatsoever. Even as the believer himself is, again, in this picture, plucked out right in the nick of time. Saved yet as though through fire, Paul says. There's a parallel in the Hebrew Scriptures in the prophet Amos. Chapter 4, verse 11, God is talking to Israel and saying, I overthrew you as God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, and you were like a firebrand plucked from a blaze. Yet you have not returned to me, says the Lord. And at that time, the Lord through Amos was saying, I saved you, and you still have not figured it out. I think there are some Christians, perhaps, who are in that category, who have been saved but have yet to figure out. They were plucked out of the fire. Yet they're still building on things that are just going to burn up in that same fire. The Lord is saying, look, Paul is saying, listen, focus on the things that last. Because you will, whether there's a literal fire that burns away things that we see all of our, you know, our houses and cars and things going up in flames and we go, wow. Or or if it's more that picture of where our hearts are at. And I, I lean that direction that we will stand before Jesus and there will be this utter realization of all these things that were worthless and I will suffer loss. What does that mean? I will suffer loss as I look into the fiery eyes of Jesus and realize all the effort I put into these things that did not matter. Remember, that's how John described Jesus. Three times in the Revelation, he said his eyes were like a flame of fire. Revelation 1.14, 2.18, and 19.12. He repeats it. So Paul's talking about this Bema Seat. He just kind of busts it out here. At the last second, he's talking about standing before God, that we're, we're going to be before Him, that these tents won't last. We want to, whether we're here or not here, we want to be pleasing to Him. And all of a sudden he says, for, because, listen, understand, we must go before the judgment seat of Christ. We're going to be there. 
back to the original question. What is it that galvanized a faith like Paul's? Three catalysts, and here's the first one. The fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord was tantamount in Paul's relationship with Jesus, in his life, in his ministry. The fear of the Lord was a catalyst to this man's faith. Look at verse 11. Therefore, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, that is context, knowing I'm going to stand at the judgment seat of Christ. I am going to be before Him. I am going to look up at Him and I will have my life evaluated by Him. Not for salvation. Remember, I've been saved by His grace. But for compensation, there is evaluation. I'm going to be there, Paul says. I'm going to stand there. And he says, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. (laughs) I am an evangelist because I know I'm going to have to give an account for myself. I know I'm going to have to respond to the Lord. The fear of the Lord. Now, sometimes it takes a while to understand what the fear of the Lord really is. To young believers, the fear of the Lord is uncomfortable. And so we often would change the word to awe. The awe of the Lord. You know, respect of the Lord. Because I don't want to say fear because that just, that tears at my idea of relationship. You know what? The older I get, the more fear of the Lord is exactly the right phrase. And we need a healthy dose of the fear of the Lord. Do you know Jesus had the fear of the Lord? He had the spirit of the Lord, right? Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2. Spirit of wisdom, spirit of understanding, spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. There is something holy and right and good, and for Paul, and I think for us as well, motivating about the fear of the Lord. Job was the first one to pull this out. First one to speak this. Before we believe even Scripture was, was written, Job was saying, Job 28, 28, To man God said, Behold the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to depart from evil is understanding. David picked up on that. Psalm 34, 11, Come you children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. And then, of course, David's son Solomon is the one who really kind of made the phrase famous. Proverbs 9, verse 10, and many other times in the book of Proverbs, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. And for Paul, understanding that one day he was going to stand before the Bema of Christ stirred his heart. Like you would stir embers. It affected Paul with awesome fear. Now, Paul was no fear monger. Paul was not walking around with a t-shirt that said, Turn or burn. (laughs) You know, sporting a sandwich board, repent or die. The fires of hell are hot, O sinner. You know, I mean, he, he wasn't that kind of guy. But he is personally talking about how he is spurred on by a fearful accountability to God. He loves God so much. His desire for Jesus is so deep and so passionate and so strong that the last thing he would want to do is stand before the Bema with empty hands having done really nothing. And so he spent his life 
So that when he stood before Jesus, he could say, I just lived for you. I surrendered all. I, I just gave it up. And whatever I counted as gain, he would say in another place in Philippians, I count as loss. Because he knew, I'm going to stand there. And the fear of the Lord filled his heart. The fear of a God who knew Paul better than Paul knew himself. He says, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are made manifest to God. And I hope that we are made manifest also to your consciences. Understand what he's saying here. This this holy fear propelled Paul to persuade people. It, It propelled his evangelism. We persuade men. We go into the synagogues. We go into the streets. We preach the gospel of Jesus. Why do you do it, Paul? Because we know the fear of the Lord. A fear that we don't want to stand empty-handed before the Bema. We want to hand people to Jesus at the Bema. We want to be able to say, Corinth and Philippi and Ephesus at the Bema, these are yours, Lord. So Paul says we persuade people. But at the same time, Paul was not out trying to prove himself. And sometimes that gets mixed up in our Christian thinking. That our work for the gospel becomes more about proving ourselves than persuading the lost. And and that's why Paul says here, we persuade men, but we are made manifest to God. A better translation might be, but we're known to God. We're out there persuading men. We're already known to God. We're not trying to persuade God, hey, look at us, look at how good we are. Paul was very clear on the fact that grace alone saved him. And so the things he did, he didn't do to prove himself to God, to to be made known to God. Look at me. No, the things he did, he did to persuade men, but we are known to God. And he says, and I hope we're known also in your consciences. We're known. So again, Paul wants to stand there at the Bema Seat, having done everything he could to address the lost, not with a handful of half-hearted attempts to impress the Lord. It wasn't about impressing God. Get this about the fear of the Lord. This is not a fear of punishment. The fear of the Lord is never a fear of punishment or of brutality or even of ambiguity. You know, those of you who have studied these things know that, that Allah is an ambiguous God. But the God of the Koran can change his mind in a heartbeat. You never really know what he thinks. And, And a good Muslim would say that. I could have one foot in heaven and be kicked out and sent to hell, a Muslim could say. And Muhammad himself didn't know whether or not he would actually be saved, quote unquote. Because that's the kind of God Allah was. Well, that's not the kind of God we have. And in fact, John says, 1 John 4.17, By this love is perfected with us, so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment, because as He is, so also are we in the world. There is no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not perfected in love. Paul knew that. John knew that. And yet they also knew the fear of the Lord. Well, Which one is it? You know, does perfect love cast out fear? Or do I fear the Lord? Yes! Perfect love casts out all fear of judgment because God is a God of grace. But I fear the Lord because God is a God of perfect righteousness. You know why things have to burn up at the Bema Seat? Because Jesus is absolutely pure. 
and no impurities will enter into the presence of God. So all that chaff and all that junk in our lives has to be burned out, has to be gotten rid of. We are known by God, and because we are known by God, as Paul says, the fear of the Lord really has much more to do with a a, a reverent desire to please Him. That's what we want to do. The fear of the Lord makes me not want to, I don't want to placate Him, I want to please Him. You know, I don't want to mollify Him, I want to glorify Him. I, I want to offer to Him something that that truly blesses my God. People feared the gods of Molech and, and the god Baal and, and the Ashtoreth and these other gods because they were brutal and demanding and exacting. And so the people would bring their sacrifices to appease their gods. We are not trying to appease God, we want to please God. Because He paid the perfect sacrifice in Jesus. So He already knows us. Paul says, this fear of the Lord is a very real thing in my life. But he also says, Corinthians, I hope you know us too. I hope by now, you know my heart. And you know what's making me tick. Verse 12, he says, we are not again commending ourselves to you, but are giving you an occasion to be proud of us. So that you will have an answer for those who take pride in appearance and not in heart. It's the same idea of what he said back in chapter 1, verse 14. He said, we are your reason to be proud as you also are ours in the day of our Lord Jesus. Proud, that is confident, pleased, heads held high. You know, I know Paul. Paul's a good guy. Paul loves Jesus. I know Paul's heart. You see, there were people in Corinth who didn't really know Paul and had an opinion about Paul. And so Paul says, look, you know us. I want you to have confidence in knowing us. Because there are some people who just look at appearances and not at the heart. Paul's appearance, by all historical account, was not good. I don't know if you know this. They say he was short. No offense. Not bad to be short. Sorry, Deb. I never thought of you as short till this moment. He was bald. Don't anyone shout out. I got that one. He had a hook nose. He had apparently an allergy problem. I mean, he has been described with dripping eyes, runny nose. Just not a real attractive guy. And there were people in Corinth who really apparently ragged on Paul. And he's saying, look, some, some find themselves just taking pride in appearance. Paul was not a formidable-looking guy. But he says, now we want you to have an answer for those who take pride in appearance and not in heart. Not in heart. Do I need to tell you that religion is all about outward appearance? That that's kind of the point. It's how we dress it up and make it look. It's the mask we put on. We've been over this many times over the years. That we're not about religion. We're not about the look, the right look of a follower of Jesus. We are about the heart. Because God is about the heart and not about superficial things. First Samuel 16.7, the Lord said to Samuel, Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. It's interesting that God said that to Samuel, Samuel who would anoint David, because it was David who would later say to Solomon, 1 Chronicles 28.9, The Lord searches all hearts. 
and understands every intent of the thoughts. God is far more interested in motives than He is in actions. He is far more interested in what's going on in my spirit than what my flesh looks like or what I present outwardly, superficially. And so Paul is saying here, look, knowing and being known by Him, it keeps my ministry in a position of holy fear. It is a right position to be in. And Corinthians, you know this about me. You understand this. Verse 13. For if we are beside ourselves, it's for God. If we are of sound mind, it's for you. I love this. Clearly, some thought Paul was nuts. And he addresses this because the phrase beside ourselves literally means cuckoo. (laughs) Paul could just as easily be saying, call me crazy. Color me cuckoo. But understand that if we are seen as insane beside ourselves, it is for God. What does that mean? It means Paul doesn't really care if he looks crazy. He's really concerned if his lifestyle is not understood by people around him. The, the, the risks that he took, the boldness that he had, the nonstop effort of the gospel. Some were like, Paul, lighten up, you're nuts. You keep getting kicked out of cities, maybe you ought to back it down a bit. And yet Paul wouldn't. And he says, look, if you think I'm crazy, fine. If it's for the gospel, count me in. Consider me insane. Are you a little crazy for Christ? Do you know that that's okay? To be seen as a little off your rocker? Man, this guy, all he talks about is Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Every time I see her, she's got a Bible and she's quoting Scripture. What is wrong with these people? Hey, if we're considered beside ourselves, it's for God. You know, when we started this church, I had friends and family who said I was nuts. Who said it would fail? I wasn't out to prove anything, honestly. I just knew God was going to do this. But there were those who were there. And then then several years went by and Sharon and I made a decision to adopt. Look at the Daly family. Everybody thought they were nuts. I did. I did. I thought this was crazy people. I thought it was a good thing they were willing to do. Good for them. God bless them. crazy. Just a little off. And then Cheryl and I decided to adopt. We were just going to adopt one. God gave us three. And I literally had people call me and have lunch with me and sit down and say, Rick, you're, you're not thinking. You are not thinking. You're a pastor. You got this church. You have these things going on. And I'm like, you don't understand. This is not something I want to do. This is something I was told to do. By who? Your wife? No! By God! And once that message came through, right, Joanna? I mean, once you get that, I'm not saying no to Him, so call me crazy. That's fine. When I know that God has called me, I will be considered nuts for the Lord. On the other hand, Paul makes this statement. He says, if we are of sound mind... It is for you. What's he saying with that? (laughs) The Corinthians knew Paul was utterly sane. How did they know? Acts 18, verse 11. He settled at Corinth a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. They knew him. They had listened to him. 
They knew when he came in, he, he wasn't this overtly eloquent guy, but he just kept preaching, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. For a year and a half, they watched him. He was a sober, serious teacher. They understood that. And he said, so, you know, you saw us in our soberness. You understood where we were coming from. So there are those out there saying we're crazy. That's fine. If it promotes the gospel, wonderful. But you know better. And you know that we are absolutely sane. In all of this, I think we can honestly say it was the fear of the Lord. It was the call of God that led Paul to live a life that most didn't fully understand. I don't think the elders in Jerusalem fully understood. In the church in Jerusalem, fully understood what Paul was about. I don't think sometimes his compadres fully grasped what Paul was about. I told you a couple or three weeks ago, to me, Paul, it was almost like he lived on a different plane. He was so taken by the Lord. He lived so by the fear of the Lord. And crazy or calm, that was a major catalyst in Paul's life and can be in yours. How do you get to the end of the road? How do you run successfully? (laughs) Well, you know where you're going, but you also know the fear of the Lord. Secondly, number two, Paul also knew the love of Christ. The love of Christ, verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us. Having concluded this, that one died, therefore all died. Now, I grew up with the lighter fare of the NIV translation. More of a snack food, really. But um, the NIV, which is not a bad translation, I'm just playing around. But it translates this verse, not the love of Christ controls us. I mean, that's a little Calvinistic. The actual translation in the NIV, which is actually not actual, is the love of Christ compels us. It's a much stronger word than that. Paul is not saying the love of Christ compels us, encourages us, gives us a good sense of moving forward. No, Paul says controls. Suneko is the word in the Greek, and it means to hold together with constraints. It means to compress with the hands. Alright? It's kind of what Tom Brady needed instead of deflating the footballs. Just compress it with the hands, man. Control that thing. It is used to describe in the Greek this word controls. The love of Christ controls us. It's used to describe a ship passing through a very narrow channel. Or, better than that, it is used to describe a city under siege. No control. Just bombarded. So Paul's saying, besieged by the love of Christ, I must besiege this world for Christ. Controlled by the love of Christ. You see, the reality is, once I know the love of Christ, I have no choice. I have given up choice. While choice is a big buzzword in this country, everybody should have their choice. I don't think so. Not if you know the love of Christ. Because once you know the love of Christ, your personal choice is worthless. It's nothing. I just want His love. I just want to be with Him. I give up my choice. I abdicate my choice. That I might be with Jesus. The love of Christ, yes, controls me. Paul uses the same word, suneko, in another place. Philippians chapter 1, verse 23, he says, I am hard-pressed. 
I am hard pressed from both directions. Having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that's very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh, for that is much more necessary for your sake. I'm pressed here, man. I am compressed by the love of Christ. I am held tight. Which is how Paul got across the goal line. Verse 15. Verse 15 he says, And he died for all, so that all who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Do we understand that? First of all, that he died for all is huge. Mind-blowing. That is reason alone for us to drop everything, drop our nets and follow him. He died for us. He died for every last one of us. He died for all. Does that leave anybody out? I looked up the word all in the Greek. Wonder what it means? All. Very good. You're with me. Starting to get out ahead of me. He died for everyone. And the love of Christ, to my mind, is the single greatest incentive in our lives. It's the greatest single incentive to love in our lives. So why, when you look at these verses, I mean, and again, you, you could sit in verse 14 and 15 alone. One died for all, therefore all died. One died for all. The all being anyone who receives, who accepts the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. He died for you, therefore you die to self. That's the deal. Once you realize He died for you, you want to die to yourself. You want to be born again. You want to say goodbye to the old man. You know? Ta-ta to the old woman. She's gone. Now I live in Christ. Now I love for Christ because of the love of Christ. But I wonder in reading this, if this is the case, that we no longer live for ourselves, but for Him who died and rose again on our behalf. Why do people give up? Christians. Why does faith give out? Why do believers give in? How does that happen? A 2016 study by the Fuller Institute, Barner Research, and PastoralCare.inc was recently released and reveals several things. I, I won't get into all of this, but just a few bullets here that over 1,700 pastors left the ministry in America last year. Per month. Per month. 1,700 pastors per month over the last 12 got out of ministry. Of that 1,700, 1,300 were fired. At the same time, multiple denominations right now are reporting an empty pulpit crisis. That is, they cannot find pastors to fill the open positions. Furthermore, last year in America, 4,000 new churches began. And 7,000 closed their doors for the last time. And 3,500 people left the church, listen, per day. What is wrong? What is going on? I, I hear the Word of God. I consider the fear of the Lord. Think about the love of Christ. 
And I don't understand, and this is not for you all, but I don't understand why our churches are not packed out. I don't understand why we're not having four, five, six, seven services in every church in town, not just here at the bridge. And I think it's because there's some confusion here. I don't think the word is being taught. You know I have that soapbox. But what we're seeing in the church is servants scram. (laughs) Disciples disappear, followers flee, churchgoers check out, and the sheep scatter. Isaiah 53 verse 6 called it, All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. And so what's the problem? And I really wonder if perhaps it's because we really don't know the love of Christ. Why do pastors get into ministry and quit so rapidly? You know, the average tenure, and and this is at at a church, the average length of stay for a pastor at a church, and this is a a guy who makes it his entire career. By the way, only one out of ten pastors make it an entire career. But three and a half years is the average length of stay for any pastor at a particular church who is a lifetime pastor. Three and a half years, and they're gone. Three and a half years, I I was just warming up. (laughs) See, this is why you start your own church, because they can't fire you, you know. I mean, I was here first, man. Put my foot on the base, I'm not leaving. (laughs) What is the problem? Listen, Paul doesn't say that our love for Christ controls us. He says the love of Christ controls us. And I think we have forgotten the love that Christ Jesus has for us. I think we fail to consider when life gets hard, when ministry for a pastor, for example, since we're talking about that, when ministry gets difficult, the pastor forgets how much they are loved by Jesus. I was talking to a pastor friend today who is just despairing. And I don't know how long he's going to stay in ministry at this point. By the way, youth pastors last 12 to 18 months. I don't know how we're going to get rid of Jake. (laughs) But why is it? How How can you know Jesus and despair? Only when you forget the love of Christ, which is not a love that you have for Him. It's the love that He first has for you. And when I forget that, yes, my spirit faints. When I forget how much Jesus loves me, okay, my faith starts shutting down. It's His love for me, not mine for Him, that keeps me rolling. And when I consider the love that Jesus has for me, I can go a long way. In fact, I can go all the way home. When I forget that, it starts to get hard. Because you know what? Honestly, I am faithless even though He is faithful. So when I look at me and I look at the amount of love that I pour out for him, that can be a very disappointing thing and I might might as well just get out of the race now. But to know that he loves you. Can I just tell you tonight, if you get nothing else, receive this in your heart. Jesus loves you. He has great passion for you. He can't keep his eyes off you. And that is an absolute truth live that and if you're discouraged today 
or saddened or, or depressed or bummed out about anything. Jesus, He loves you. He just does. The whole world can hate me if I know Jesus loves me. I'm good. And we understand this. I love the old hymn, Oh love that will not let me go. That's what He has for me. And knowing that, I can go on forever and more so in this ministry to which we are all called, this race that we all run, it's not just the fear of the Lord which is marvelous and reverential and compelling, but it is the love of Christ that literally controls me, holds on to me, gets me across the goal. And we love, John says, 1 John 4.19, because He first loved us. And that love translates into how we see other people. Look at verse 16. I I love this verse. Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know Him in this way no longer. We're not looking at the flesh anymore, he says. Verse 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. My entire perception and perspective of you, my brothers and sisters in Christ, is completely different. I don't see you in the flesh. I don't see, I am not led by or dissuaded by the idiosyncrasies of the flesh. Those things that you do toward me or I do toward you, I don't recognize that anymore. The stuff of the sin nature. No, no. I am in a room filled with new creatures, new creations. And Paul's saying, that's how we are now. We know the love of Christ. It controls us. And therefore, when we look at each other, we don't see each other the way we used to be. We see each other the way Jesus has created us to be. New creatures in Christ Jesus. Now, it's interesting to me that Paul says, we have known Christ according to the flesh. Though we have known Christ according to the flesh, we don't know Him this way anymore. Wait a minute, Paul. When did you know Christ according to the flesh? There are some who think that perhaps, because of this statement of Paul, we have known Christ according to the flesh, that Paul saw Jesus in his ministry in Jerusalem. And if so, and this is just surmise, if Paul did see Jesus in Jerusalem, he would have hated him. That rabble-rousing rabbi. Nazarene nuisance. And he went on a bender to burn down the church, didn't he? And it's entirely likely that he did see Jesus in the flesh at that time and did not understand Him and had an anger and a hatred toward Him. But then he saw Him on the Damascus Road. And everything changed. And it wasn't Jesus who changed, it was Paul who changed. Paul who became a new creature. He didn't see Jesus for who He was. And now he can't see Jesus at all for what he used to think. And because of that, Paul says... When we look at each other, we don't see each other in the flesh. We don't judge by the flesh. We don't judge by the old sin nature. We only see each other as new creations. Man, by the love of Christ. I am now compelled, controlled to love you. And you me. 
Let's make sure it goes both ways. And he says in verse 18, Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to Himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them. What does that tell us about how we treat each other? He says, not counting their trespasses against them, and He has committed to us the word of reconciliation. And I think we might work through that word a little bit on Sunday. I haven't decided yet, but I'm starting to think that's what we need to talk about. But right now we're getting to this third ministry motivator, the fear of the Lord, the love of Christ. And, and before we do, did you notice what Paul said back there in verse 19 about the Godness of Jesus? He says, namely, that God was in Christ. How much more clear do we need to be? Jesus in the flesh was God in the flesh. Jesus is God. Any questions? Paul would later say in 1 Timothy 3.16, without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. And here it is. God was manifest or known in the flesh. Justified in the Spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received up into glory. God was in Christ, reconciling the world to Himself not counting their trespasses against them. And He has committed to us the word of reconciliation. And here comes the third catalyst. This this same God and King has committed this same ministry, that is the ministry of God in Christ, which is the ministry of reconciliation. He has now committed it to you and to me. Ministry motivator number three, the assignment of the ambassador. Therefore, verse 20, We are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us. And Paul is speaking to Corinth. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. You know, we hear that verse often. We even have songs that sing that verse. Verse 21. He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Don't let the familiarity of this verse lessen its weight and its impact. Such is the love of Christ. And this should also stir in us the fear of the Lord. That Jesus didn't just take away sin, He became sin. He didn't just come up to you with a a scrub brush and a bucket of soap, you know, and and scrub the sin off of you. He became sin. I mean, He was, can I say sin incarnate? That when Jesus was on the cross, He was covered in the filth of sin of all time. He became sin on our behalf. No wonder Isaiah had said before, surely our griefs He Himself bore and our sorrows He carried. And we ourselves esteemed Him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. Well, of course He was. He became sin. 
In Isaiah 53, verse 5, He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon Him. And by His scourging, we are healed. He became sin. I don't know if there's a, a, a weightier statement in all of Scripture. Galatians 3.13, Paul says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And man, that stirs in me the fear of the Lord, a God who would do that. And it stirs in me the love of Christ beyond comprehension. And it calls me as an assigned ambassador. Paul knew his assignment. Do you know yours? Do you understand when Paul says we are ambassadors for Christ, he's not just talking about him and his little missionary team. He's talking about us. We are ambassadors of the kingdom. We are assigned the role of bringing this message. Fear of the Lord and the love of Christ. We are assigned to bring it to the world. The gospel. That is our calling. That is our purpose. And by the way, that stuff that won't burn up at the beam of seat. The bringing of the gospel. And note this, ambassadors, you have been given an amazing authority. Ambassador. Ambassadors for Christ. The word ambassador is presbuo. You Bible students, does that sound familiar? Don't say Presbyterian. Presbyteros, elder. The root word is presbyteros. Presbuo comes from that, and it is literally used in the Greek language. It speaks of an older, wiser person, but in this case, presbuo is specifically an emissary. It is a representative and ambassador, but understand, with full authority. When you go with the message of Jesus, you go with the full weight and authority of Jesus to bring that message. You are speaking on His behalf. You are giving His words. And that's why He says in verse 1 of chapter 6, And working together with Him, we also urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain. What? So He's not just sending us, but we are working with Him. As His ambassadors... With full authority. Paul says, that's the deal, man. And we urge you not to receive the grace of God, therefore, in vain. Wait a minute, wait a minute. How do you receive the grace of God in vain? Well, we empty grace. In vain just means an emptiness. We empty grace when we think we've earned it. Anyone who thinks they have done anything good to earn the grace of God, you're emptying it out. You've received it in vain. Because the grace of God is what you cannot earn. We empty grace when we, when we tie it down. Kind of like the Pharisees who would go and make a proselyte and when they made one, a, a follower like themselves, Jesus said they made them twice as much a son of hell as they were. So when we have received grace but we tie it down and don't allow others to, we empty grace. We also empty grace... Just by keeping our mouths shut. When we don't, speak of it. Did you receive the grace of God in vain? Well, no, no, I'm saved by grace. Who was the last person you told? Because if we don't really believe it enough to share it, we empty it. 
and we receive it in vain. Paul said to Titus chapter 2, verse 11, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men and instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. That's what grace does. And a grace that is not received in vain is a grace that in and of itself, you could add that actually as a motivator, as another catalyst, and that's simply the grace of God. But in this context, we're still talking about ambassadors. Ambassadors, verse 2. Paul says, at the acceptable time, I listened to you. And on the day of salvation, I helped you. That's Isaiah 49, verse 8. It's one of the servant songs in Isaiah. It comes out of Isaiah's book of comfort, chapter 40 through 66. And it follows right on the heels of that servant song, which is a song about Jesus. And immediately it says, at the acceptable time, I listened to you. And on the day of salvation, I helped you. And God goes on to say to Israel, but you wouldn't have any of it. And now Paul says, behold, now is the acceptable time. The time has come. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Giving no cause for offense in anything, so that the ministry will not be discredited. Don't mess this up, man. But in everything, he says, commending ourselves as servants of God. So the ambassadorial example of Paul reveals the power of of his motivation. And here it is, as ambassadors. Remember, the fear of God, fear of the Lord, the love of Christ. But the assignment of the ambassador is compelling in and of itself. Why? Because Paul's example reveals that we are not sent out alone. That as God was in Christ, verse 19, reconciling the world to Himself, so now we as servants of God have been committed the same thing. What does that mean? God in Christ, Christ in you. Don't forget, as a follower of Jesus, Christ in you. You you want to have something that gives you endurance? There you go. Boy, I'm feeling weak this week. You know what? But Christ is in me. I'm a little worn out by all the things going on in this world. Christ is in me. I don't know if I can make it, you know, even to Sunday. Christ is in me. Along with the fear of the Lord and the love of Christ, Christ Jesus Himself has made His home in me. John 14, 18, I will not leave you as orphans, He promised. I will come to you. After a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will. You will see me because I live, you will live also. That is, and He goes on to explain, I will make my abode in you. Christ is in me, reconciling the world now to God, just as God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself. That's the power of the ambassador. We don't just have a message. We have the King in us. To help us, to motivate us, to bring that message. And if you want a finer point, Colossians 1.27, Paul says, God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you. The hope of glory. Ambassadors sent out, not having to call home to find out what the president or the, or the king wants us to do. Because the king's right here. So in the moment I say, Lord Jesus, how do you want me to handle this? And off I go. Christ in me. 
And what ultimately is the result? And we'll finish with this. Watch this. But in everything, verse 4, commending ourselves as servants of God, he says, in much endurance, in afflictions, in hardships, in distresses, in beatings, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in sleeplessness, in hunger. And I think we've just come full circle, Paul. (laughs) Right back to, remember he was talking about the hardship back in chapter 4. The difficulties, the challenges, he'll illuminate that even more as he goes. And we're right back to it. And so you read, if you just read those verses, affliction, hardship, distress, beatings, imprisonments, tumults, labor, sleeplessness, I mean, who would read that and go, oh, wow, where do I sign up for that? <laughs> we're starting up a new sleeplessness and being beat about the head and face ministry. Want to join? <laughs> Paul says, that's the deal, ambassadors. But then he continues, watch this, in purity, verse 6, in knowledge, oh, we get that, in patience, kindness, in the Holy Spirit, in genuine love, this is getting better and better, in the word of truth, in the power of God, by the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and the left. What does that mean? Well, typically the right hand would be a weapon of offense and the left hand would be a weapon of defense. And Paul will illuminate that even further in Ephesians chapter 6. But we have both kinds of weapons. We can go on the offensive and we have great defense as well in the Lord. He says, by glory, verse 8. Yes, I'm so into this now. And dishonor. By evil report. Yeah. And good report. (laughs) Regarded as deceivers, and yet true, unknown, yet well known. As dying, yet behold, we live. As punished, yet not put to death. As sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. As poor, I love this, he doesn't say yet rich, he says yet making many rich. And as having nothing, yet possessing all things. Marvelous. And what a mixed bag of stuff. He writes out, he explains all these really negative things that again wouldn't sell a church program at all. And then all these other things that, well yeah, I like those. I'll sign up for that. And then he concludes by mixing the two together. The good, the bad, the ugly, it's all right here. How do we live with such a mixed bag of pain and promise of cruelty and blessing. See, this is the reality of the ambassador's walk. The truth of the Christian life is all of that is included. All of it. How do we live with that? I mean, wouldn't you think the bad would cancel out the good? According to the Harvard Business Review, the ideal praise to criticism ratio for motivating people is approximately six positives for every one negative. Which means I need to build Rachel up six times before I can rip her once. I'll keep that in mind as you continue in the staff journey. Yeah. And, that, and they've actually done studies on this and, and you know checked out these different groups and how they responded to negative uh, charges by the boss and positive stuff, six. So you need six and they can have one negative because you do need some negative. Every now and then, look, you... You're not doing this well. So six to one. There is a greater truth in the motivation of Jesus' people. 
We know the fear of the Lord. We have the love of Christ. We understand the assignment of the ambassador. But as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, you should expect trials and difficulties in greater measure than anybody else. But you should also expect blessing in greater measure than anybody else. And the blessings of God far outweigh the difficulties of this life. How do I deal with all that? I just keep my eyes on Jesus. I keep looking at the blessings. I know the fear of the Lord. I am held by, compressed by the love of Christ. And I'm an ambassador, man. Don't mess with me. (laughs) That'll galvanize your faith. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, it is with great encouragement that we read this letter of Paul. And we hear how how this one servant expresses and explains his, his moving through this life, this calling that is placed on him as one of your ambassadors, as an apostle. Lord, we sang tonight, send me. We sang, I surrender all. May these not simply be words in a song, but the cry of our heart. And Father, I pray when it gets difficult, that we will look to the blessings. That we will recognize all that we've talked about here tonight. But but most importantly, Father, that we will just fix our eyes on Jesus. Because always, Lord, when we do, we realize that the blessings do far outweigh the challenges. We know that You will complete this work in us. And so I pray, Lord, that this teaching tonight in Your words would be confidence and encouragement and a catalyst for our faith until Jesus comes in Jesus' name. Amen.